I'm going to read from Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In the late 1930s and early 1940s, there was an attempt to try to find those who were still alive from the era of American slavery. Those who were slaves, who lived through the period of slavery and the emancipation, and they interviewed people that were in their late 90s, and some of them as old as 101 years old. And in the 90s, they remastered this audio so that you could listen to it. And you can find this on YouTube. There's an ABC broadcast from 1999 where they're interviewing these slaves and asking them what life was like, what their day-to-day was like, what it was like to be turned free. And a lot of times you listen to things like this. You listen to an interview maybe from someone who survived the Holocaust or an interview from someone who escaped somewhere like North Korea or something like that. And there's this odd normality in the tone that they talk about, you know, these atrocities that they went through. And one of the things that you find in listening to the interviews about these slaves that were turned free, there's a man named Fountain Hughes. And he talks about, you know, you just, you know, you work all day and the sun going down is no indication that your day is over. You work until they tell you to stop working. And they tell stories of children eating out of troughs, sleeping on pallets, being whipped, being tied up in an orchard and whipped, and, you know, the master putting their pipe out on the slave as a punishment, and all these atrocities. And the narrator who's talking over this ABC broadcast, he says that their calm demeanor is at odds with the evil and violence that we associate with slavery. And it gets me thinking about things like Stockholm Syndrome, where someone can sympathize with their their captor, where people can be in such terrible situations, but humans kind of adapt to that evil. And it's only after they're free, only after they have something to compare it to, that they're even aware of how bad it was. In the same way, our Christian lives, the way that our nature is, we are so predisposed to return to slavery. Fountain Hughes, he talks about how, you know, they were let free, but that didn't really mean anything to them. You know, one of the evils of slavery was that there wasn't really a perception that there was even an alternative. So they were let free with nowhere to go, no skills. They had no ability to read and write. And so Fountain Hughes says that within a few months, his mom actually was renting out the family for a dollar a month. Right? They got their freedom, but they returned to nearly the same level of slavery. And I want to talk about the freedom that we've been granted in Christ in such a way that we know what we've been freed to. And we can recognize when we're returning back to what we've been freed from. 
Paul says in the first verse of this chapter, he says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Freedom is the purpose. Christ could appeal to the Galatians and say that, Galatians, you who would desire to turn back to the law, you are free. But Paul elevates it to the, to the, status, that, or the status that he says, for freedom he set you free. That freedom was the purpose of your freedom. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, do, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So the question here, as we who have not been studying through the book of Galatians, but are parachuting into the fifth chapter, is what is the slavery in reference to? What was the slavery? Certainly the New Testament speaks of our freedom from slavery in reference to sin. You can find that in you know, Paul's logic in Romans chapter 6, that we have been freed from sin. We know that we've been freed as believers from the power of the evil one. The prince of the power of the air, Satan himself in charge of this world, that he has no power over us. But in this context, though there's connections to things like sin and the power of Satan, in the context of Galatians chapter 5, we are freed in reference to the law. We are freed in reference to the law as our slave master, the law as necessary to be right with God. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56, Paul says that the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The law points us back to our inadequacy, points us back to where we fall short of God's perfect standard. And so what does Paul say? He says, stand firm, therefore. If there's an issue that the church needs to dig in its heels and hold the line, it's as though Paul is reinforcements to the battle lines, right? The Galatians have allowed false teaching and kind of these struggles with the flesh to allow false teaching to permeate that there's some works that are necessary for salvation. And Paul is coming and saying, the battle line is over there. We need to stand firm and we need to hold this ground. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. This language of Paul saying that we as the church need to be holding on to faith alone, holding on to the grace of God as our only hope for our justification. When Paul says to not submit again, it's this idea of entangling. This idea of, you know, you personally are going to take the chains of slavery and put them back on yourself. To submit again, to put the yoke on yourself. Because it's familiar, like that slave who was freed and his family returned to selling him. We don't often get tempted to wholesale abandon grace and to wholesale do away with grace, but we get tempted to add things and to get close to the slavery that we once were under. Paul uses the illustration in Galatians at the end of Galatians 3 and into chapter 4, this illustration that we, as believers, are no longer slaves. We are sons. We are adopted. And Paul says, when you return to the law for your confidence, and you return to the law as necessary for salvation, it's as though you've been adopted into the family. 
and you're in the house with the family, and old habits die hard, and you, you know, go back out in the field and treat your father as the master again. But he says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So what is the logic in Galatians 4, verse 7? So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir through God. So we do not return to the yoke of slavery. Now again, as those who have parachuted into the book of Galatians and haven't been following Paul's step-by-step argument, what is the Galatian church doing that is so severe that it is tantamount to returning to slavery? What is this huge issue? Look with me at verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I want to look at verses 2 through 4. You could call that whole first point that freedom is the purpose, right? In in verse 1 that Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. I want to look at our second point here, that freedom is at risk. Freedom is at risk in verses 2 through 4. We see three if statements and four then statements. Paul says, if this is your mindset, then this is true. And I want to deal with the if statements first and go into the then statements. And before we get there, I just want to take a second. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. As though Paul's saying, Galatians, do not return to slavery. As though he has lost their attention, he says, look, listen up. I, Paul, say to you. Paul is appealing to them on, I, I would say, two levels of authority that we see Paul use multiple times, where Paul opens up the book of Galatians, even defending this idea that Paul is an apostle, that Paul's words are God's words. And so Paul opens up, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man. So Paul instantly is writing to the Galatians to to correct their error that they think, or they have accepted and started to believe that Paul got his gospel, kind of, you know, gave him a telephone, and he's saying, no, I got it directly from the Lord. Verse 11, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. So Paul is appealing to them when he says, look, I, Paul, an apostle, am appealing to you. He's appealing to them as one who brings the message of grace, but he's also appealing to them as one who is very well-versed in the law. Paul spends a good part of the beginning of Galatians also talking about his time as a Pharisee, as one who persecuted the church. So you can see Paul's argument in Galatians 1, verse 13. And he says, he's talking to the Galatians, they're familiar. He says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So Paul is saying, look, Galatians, as an apostle, as one who, as he says in other scriptures, if anyone was going to be justified by the law, it was going to be me. 
I'm telling you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So let's look at these three if statements. The first one, if you accept circumcision, and what Paul is saying here is accepting it as necessary for salvation. Right? Paul says, if you accept circumcision, I testify again to every man who would accept circumcision, and he says, to you who would be justified by the law. All those are the same thing. And here's the thing, circumcision is not some special kind of grievous law-keeping sin, right? It's not some grand thing that because it's circumcision, because it represents the old law, the reason that it is so weighty is because it is a prerequisite work. A prerequisite, like if you're going to take a class and you can't take that class until you take a class prior to it, it's pre-required. Any work pre-required to the gospel is not the gospel. And so the weight of this issue is that circumcision is not some grand problem. Paul actually would have Timothy circumcised in Acts 16 for the sake of them having access to certain places to share the gospel, right? In the, in the spirit of 1 Corinthians 9, Paul would say, to the Greeks, I became a Greek. To the Jews, I became a Jew. So circumcision isn't some grand sin, but it is the place that it has in the minds and the hearts of the Galatian church. It's on the side where the cross should be by itself. It's something that they're putting their trust in. All right, we, we know that the gospel is given to the one that the Romans 4 says to the one who does not work. And so any work is not the gospel. Now I want you guys to look at verse 3. Paul says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Now, when, just by way of interpretive practice, when you think about God, God being all-knowing, truth itself, truth himself, where the psalmist says, who can number the sum of your thoughts? Who could even fathom it? When God has given us a finite amount of words that we can carry around, we take all the words seriously. When God repeats himself, we take it seriously. Right? Even in the book of Galatians, Galatians is kind of known for Paul's lack of common structure, where Paul says things multiple times, where he kind of violates the normal order of the way he would talk, where he says, let me ask you one thing, and then he asks them three things, because he's so worked up about this error. And in the beginning, when Paul addresses the Galatians, usually you would have like, Paul, an apostle, grace and peace, uh, I remember you in my prayers, and there's this structure, but Paul can't even get past the very beginning of his letter without saying in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So Paul warns them twice. You know, I want to take a moment to talk about circumcision. I think in our minds, initially, thinking about a church who is saying, hey, you have to require circumcision in order to be saved, that sounds extreme. 
right? That sounds like an extreme notion. That sounds like an extreme thing to do. But I think that the reason in God's sovereignty that this is the example we have of works-based righteousness is because circumcision, in a way, is one of the most inconsequential requirements that you could put on grace. And I say that in this sense. We tend towards every time that we sin, we look at ourselves to pay some kind of penance or we need to take some time before we repent to the Lord or we need to do this in the church or we need to do these things. And we can live a lifetime of works-based righteousness in our perspective. Circumcision is a one-time act. It doesn't require a right heart before the Lord. It doesn't require the right state of mind. It doesn't require some high level of conviction. You could do it one time, and that's the example that Paul chooses to say, if you accept this, one small, largely ceremonial requirement to grace, it is not grace, categorically. Paul, his third if statement, if you would be justified by the law, Justified by the law, Paul is already establishing Galatians 2.16 that no one will be justified by the law. In the same way that we attest to the fact that there is not a sin small enough to be incapable of separating you from the Lord, there's not a good work small enough that is capable of separating you from the Lord if you put your trust in that good work. If your faith is in the work as opposed to the Lord, Now, what does this works-based view of righteousness say about God? Just as a little bit of an aside here, our tendency in our hearts to the law, to relate to God based off of our deeds and not based off of Christ alone, you have to lower God's righteousness, his holiness, his wrath, his knowledge, to say that, you know, I was perfect up until this point that this one sin that I'm very aware of derailed my salvation. We have to lower God. We have to elevate man, certainly. You have to grade yourself on a curve at the very least to say that we're going to make ourselves right with God in the way that we behave. And you have to bring Christ down to say that Christ is necessary in part because I need to do something. To say that Christ is sufficient, almost. That Jesus says it is finished. And you say, not quite that the wrath of God is satisfied, but we take a little bit to flog ourselves with. And the problem with this error is that it looks very religious. It looks very holy. Tri-City, we need to be a church of grace that remembers that grace is not the springboard into faith. That grace is the life of a believer. It's very easy to see someone who is just beating themselves over their sin and think, well, I don't want to get in the way of that. I would hate to give them good news because it looks religious. You know, we sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And I think so much of us in our day-to-day, in our weeks, is we want to have something in our hand we bring before we go to God. You can't place anything of your works next to the cross. So what Paul said, if you accept circumcision as necessary for salvation, which is tantamount to trying to be justified by the law, the four thans, 
What results from that? First, we see in verse 2 that Christ will be of no advantage to you. No gain, no benefit, no aid, no help. I think advantage is an interesting choice of words. Is Christ not more than an advantage? (laughs) I think that Paul uses that word to critique their view of what Christ is. Right? They're struggling with works-based righteousness, and they view Christ as an advantage because they're trying to insert some of their works next to him. And Paul's saying, if that is your view, he will not even be that. He will be of no advantage to you. Paul says you are obligated to keep the whole law. I find it helpful. There's an acronym that someone taught me about the law and what the requirement of obedience is, and the acronym is PEEP, P-E-E-P, if you think of Easter, and it's perfect, exact, entire, and perpetual obedience. Perfect, exact, entire, and perpetual obedience. In that requirement of the law, in order to be justified before God on the basis of your own righteousness, you need perfect, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. Paul says that you're obligated to keep the whole law. It is the logic of a law follower, right? Paul is already establishing Galatians 3 that if you want to keep part of the law, you are obligated to keep the whole thing. Cursed is everyone that does not abide by all things written in the law to do them. And again, this has the appearance of holiness, but it's anything but. It can't produce righteousness, right? Things that have the appearance of godliness, but are of no effect in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 10 when he's grieving over Israel who has not repented, that seeking to establish a righteousness of their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness in Christ. So Christ will be of no advantage to you. You're obligated to keep the whole law, and if you are to accept the law as your justification, you are severed from Christ. This is the opposite of so much of the language of the New Testament to the church, language of our communion with Christ, that we are in Christ, and Christ is in us, and we are hidden with Christ in God in heaven, and we are the the vines, and he is the branch, and we are the sheep, and he is the shepherd, and we are in the family, and we are adopted, and we are sons, and he's our older brother, and we're co-heirs. Severed is the opposite of all of that. It's made worthless to you, Christ said that if righteousness was through the law, Paul reminds us that then Christ died for no purpose. Your good works as a believer, wrongly understood, wrongly trusted, can make us pharisaical, can make us discouraged. And we don't want to be those who, even as believers, are seeking to establish a righteousness of our own. We have to stand in him or we stand alone. Fourth, Paul says, if you accept the law as your basis of your justification, you have fallen away from grace. Fallen away from grace. You have chosen to walk alone. Paul uses all these examples and illustrations to say that this single 
prerequisite work before the cross, separated from Christ. Not because self-righteousness is the unforgivable sin as a believer, because if that were the case, I would have no hope even this week, but because if you categorically understand the gospel to be works plus Christ, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. That's not the good news. So it's not because self-reliance is the unpardonable sin. And Paul even says that you're severed from Christ, you who would be justified from the law. Right? Talking to believers, to the Galatian church, if you are accepting this, this standard, then you would be severed from the Lord. Even for this, like I said, largely symbolic act, but because it's, whatever it is, because it's on the wrong side of the cross, because it's a prerequisite, it's not the gospel. Now, I want to just take a moment, just think about the moments that you feel the most right before the Lord. There's a book called The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges, and he has this line that I've just never forgotten where he says that even our tears of repentance need to be washed by the blood of the Lamb. And I think we settle for a perspective in our lives that, you know, we're right before God when we feel like we're right before God, when to be a believer is to be declared righteous, that your standing before God is not less secure now than it will be when you are removed from your sinful flesh and raised, that you're as justified now as you will be in eternity because of what Christ has done. So we need to elevate God in our minds, elevate just how sinful sin is, and you'll stop trying to think that you can even pay penance and you can do these things in your life. Now, here's the problem. We run into the logic that I believe the Galatians ran into. What do you do with, oh, I feel the temptation towards self-righteousness. I want to look towards the law. I feel bent towards something that I could look to and hold on to that gives me confidence, and I see that even as a believer, I'm warring with the flesh. I see that there's another law at work in me, as we heard from Romans, that there's another desire at work in me, and I think that this struggle in the flesh became the way that these false teachers brought a Trojan horse into the church, because they gave the church who's like, we struggle with the flesh. How does this work? How are we sanctified? We're believers. We know we're to be growing in holiness, but we're still struggling. And false teachers came in, and they sold them what every religion does, what every heart is totally willing to accept in our own logic, that there's things we need to do, that there's ceremonies, or there's some adherence you need to pay, or you need to do such and such charity work or whatever it is, and the church came and sold them a plausible way that they could explain, you know, and they could grow and understand the toil with the flesh, but Paul says that that is not the gospel. He, he will go on saying that you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. This idea is not God's but we run into the same question as believers. What do we do with this indwelling sin? How do we understand the Christian life? I feel so prone to the law. How do I deal with the sin in my life through the gospel? How do we live? 
And that's where we get into verses 5 and 6, that freedom is the method. Paul says, for through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Walking through the Spirit is contrary to self-righteousness. Paul's responding to these premises that he's established. If you accept circumcision, Christ is of no value to you. You're severed from him. You're under the law. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. I remember in uh, eighth grade, when I was doing pre-algebra, I think I was probably like a month and a half into school, and I just was not tracking at all. I was so confused, and it was very frustrating, and it was because I basically didn't understand one of the most essential parts of pre-algebra, and then everything builds off of that. And it was the order of operations. You guys remember PEMDAS? P-E-M-D-A-S, that parentheses, exponents, multiplication, division, addition, subtraction, that if you don't follow that order of events, you will not get the right answer. That order of operations. The Christian life, unlike every other religion, is faith equals salvation plus works. Faith equals salvation plus works. What is natural to the human heart is that faith plus works equals salvation. And the equation that saves has faith on its own side. Faith on it alone, on one side of the equal sign, that faith leads to salvation and leads to works. And so as a believer, the same works that we at one point were beating ourselves to feel as though we were right before God by doing these works, the very same works become an outworking of our confidence that what needs to be done has been done, that it is finished, that none of these works are going to tip the scales of eternity, for better or for worse. Christ died for the sins that I committed before my salvation and after. You know, Ephesians 2, 8, 8 through 10, you can flip a few pages over, just this great small section that so many of us have memorized either on purpose or maybe just by familiarity of being in the church. But Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Right? So our faith has nothing to do with our works. So what of our works then? Well, Paul says we are his workmanship. Not only are we to work after we're saved, but we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul in in 1 Corinthians 15 says that I worked harder than any of them, but it was God who worked in me. I think of a a prayer of of St. Augustine. He says, Lord, command what thou wills and grant what thou commands. Command what thou will and grant what thou commands. This works that we do that are predetermined by the Lord that we should walk in them, they're never on the other side of the equal sign. They're always a result of faith. Turn back to Galatians chapter 2. How are we to think of our 
sanctification, our growing in holiness before God, it is always in light of our justification. Our justification is always in view, justification being declared right before God. It's always in view when we think about how we're to progress in the Christian life. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's in the logic of Paul that everything is of grace, everything that we look back to, we look at what is declared true, that we are justified before Christ for confidence that our obedience, again, is not going to be put on the scales. It's so hard to believe. Maybe it's easier to believe sitting here, but it'll be hard to believe maybe even this afternoon (laughs) when we are relating with people and we're struggling with our sins. But Paul says that the life I live is all in light of what Christ has done. And we look at verse 5 again when he says, For through the Spirit, that Paul has already established that through the Spirit that we received by faith, right? This is one of those examples where Paul kind of has crazy structure. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing with faith? And all the Galatians have to say, well, of course we received the Spirit by believing with faith. And then he says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And that's a little harder for them to answer because that's the logic of a legal sanctification, right? Looking at your own works. That's the logic is that you have started by the Spirit, but you're being perfected by the flesh. When Paul says, no, we are being perfected by the Spirit, We as people desire a confidence before God and it is natural to point to ourselves. Look again back in our section in verse five. We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We wait eagerly. Wait, eager, hope. All of this is language of anticipation anticipating what will be in the future, right? As believers, we all struggle with the notion of what is declared right, what is declared true, and what is the reality on the ground, dealing with the flesh. And Paul says that the Christian life, in essence, is looking backwards and looking forwards, right? We look back to our justification, what Christ has done, what is declared to be true, and we look forward into the hope of the day when what is declared true what is sure in heaven will be actual when we're glorified, when we're removed from sin, when our minds don't fail and our flesh don't fail and our hearts don't fail. We look and we anticipate with hope based off of what has already been done in Christ. Because for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Verse six, even this phrase in Christ Jesus is a refreshing contrast to what's already been said. Those of, you know, if we accept the law as our basis of our justification, we've fallen from grace, we're severed from Christ. But Paul says in Christ Jesus, circumcision, uncircumcision, it counts for nothing. 
It's the opposite of being severed. Being in him, it counts for nothing. But what does count? Only faith working through love. Faith working through love. Faith, I think in faith in every context outside of like common vernacular in the church where we get it wrong a lot, faith is always in reference to the object. Faith, trust, dependence. It's always in reference to the thing that you have faith in or have trust in or have dependence in. If I say I trust my dad, which I do, he's right up here. If I say I trust my dad, and then one day I'm struggling to trust my dad, I don't turn to find confidence in my faith. Right? I don't say, man, I'm struggling with my faith. I'm going to turn back to my faith. No, I turn back to my dad to derive my confidence about whether my dad is trustworthy and sufficient for the task. And that is so natural to just what faith is. Faith is always in reference to the object. But a lot of times when we talk about faith, how is your faith? It's just this subjective sense of what, if you dig a little deeper, is usually faithfulness. And that is not the issue. So it's not faithfulness that saves us. It's not the measure of faith that we have. It's the sufficiency of the object of our faith. So what does faith working through love look like? Well, it looks like looking to Christ. That's what faith is. Looking to Christ, this is, again, the logic of the New Testament. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians that beholding the glory of Christ, when the veil is torn away and we're no longer under the law, beholding the glory of Christ, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Paul again says that the love of Christ compels us. Why? Because we've concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. Paul's logic is always looking to Christ. Why does the love of Christ compel us? Because we believe that Christ did what he said. We believe that he's coming again. We believe that now he's our advocate at the right hand of the Father. We believe that the Spirit prays better prayers than we pray. Our faith is not internalized. It's not a mirror back to ourselves. It's always a looking to Christ. And in 1 John, we love because he, we love because he first loved us. So faith working through love, a lot of times we can get hung up on even what is the notion of what love looks like and, and all these things. And it's worth exploring in some context, I'm sure, if we need to figure out what it actually looks like to love maybe our spouses or our families or our coworkers, our neighbors, whatever. But I think more often than not, we don't struggle with the idea that we ought to do that. We struggle with the motivation and the how and the why. But we love because he first loved us. So where does this come up most commonly? I want to close with kind of three examples that we very easily and kind of sneakily tend towards a legal heart before God. We remember that Paul is saying that for freedom, we have been set free. But we excuse our own hearts to return to slavery and we excuse one another's. And we ought to be those who are reminding each other of the grace of God that alone gives us confidence. So where does this come up? I think 
most evidently and probably the most evident to us is in our sanctification. And my encouragement for all of us is to repent of your low view of God, your low view of your sin, and your low view of Christ. Because the law, to be convinced that you're being somewhat justified by the law, has to lower God, has to make sin less consequential, has to lower the atonement of what Christ has done. And so there is part of us where, you know, we're like, man, I could never be saved, or how could the Lord forgive me of this? And that's an acceptable sin a lot of the times in the church, to just be, woe is me. But there's another sin at root, that when Christ said it is finished, we said, no, it's not. When Christ is eternally worthy and eternally sufficient for our sins, we're saying no. So we need to repent of that low view of our Lord that's really at the heart of that issue. And don't confuse the order of operations. Faith equals salvation and works. You know, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. But I think sometimes the way we apply that is if you obey my commandments, you love me. And those are not the same thing. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And a lot of times the issue when we're not obeying, we need to get to the root of remembering who Christ is, who we are in him, who he is, so that we love him, so that we obey him. A lot of times we go straight to the, oh, if I obey him, then I love him. No, if you love him, you will obey him. After sanctification, I think the next major category is evangelism. And this is brief, but my encouragement and my challenge is to make sure that the good news is good news. Not better news, not diet law, not a presentation of the gospel that's so heavy laden with external conformities that it's no longer good news. I think that might be why so many of us are confused on how the way, how grace intersects with our lives and our sanctification is part of it is the way we were presented the gospel has a lot of works tied to it, a lot of external conformities. Make sure that the gospel is given freely. Have a high view of God's sovereignty and his ability to convict hearts and present the truth to people. Don't determine how or when or what kind of person is worthy of the message. And then the last category of where I see this come up a lot, even in my own life, is Christian counsel. The way that we counsel each other through sins, indwelling sins. Uh, Pastor Rourke quoted a book of, of poems that some of us have been reading that are just great on the gospel. And one of these lines I love so much, and it's so pointed to this issue of the way that we encourage and challenge each other to holiness. He says, we bid men turn from sin, but seldom say, behold the lamb who takes away all sin. We bid men turn from sin, but seldom say, behold the lamb who takes away all sin. Right? We tell people turn from sin without giving them the solution. Even as believers one to another, we can have kind of a pull yourself up by your bootstraps Christianity, but you can only exhort people into a high level of holiness by the high level of freedom, right? We, we don't encourage each other to grow fruit so that we might become trees. We encourage each other to bear fruit because we are trees. 
right? Again, Paul always, this is the logic of the New Testament, right? This is, you know, not in accordance with the new man, or you've been buried with Christ, you've been crucified with him. Is it logical to, you know, join Christ to a prostitute? All of this outflowing of what Paul says should motivate our holiness is in the light of what is true. And a lot of times, as believers, even though we struggle with indwelling sin, we withhold assurance from each other based off of the struggle for holiness. So don't be slow to give the good news to those who struggle with holiness, even within the household. Galatians 6, 1, he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. So in summation of, of all of what Paul has taught us and the freedom that we have in Christ, what do I do if I believe that Jesus died for my sins, but I struggle with this indwelling tendency towards the law? What do I do? Repent and believe the gospel. Look back to Christ. Don't psychoanalyze your faith. Get to know the one who can bolster your faith. If the apostles can say, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief, then we all ought to pray that. Look to Christ. What do you do now if you're sitting here and you're, I've never known that freedom. I've never had that freedom. I've never been freed from the law. I've never been able to say that I have no fear of condemnation before, because Christ paid the price for my sins. What am I to do? Repent and believe the gospel. It's not a different solution. Look to Christ, repent and believe that Christ is sufficient for you. He is sufficient to cover every sin. Whoever sins as a believer, we have an advocate with Christ. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near and who the Son sets free is free indeed. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that even in our daily struggles that we allow ourselves to return to a view of you that has to bring you down from heaven to make you attainable, Lord, that our view of the law reflects our view of you. God, I pray that we would not be afraid to have a high view of the law because we know that the law is not what we're going to be judged by. God, I pray that every soul here those who are not saved, those who think themselves saved, and maybe there's even pride in saying, how could I have gone so long and not known the gospel? I pray that there would be no good work that would stand in the way of them in eternity. No self-righteousness, no self-trust. Lord, I pray that you would point us to your sufficient son. I pray that you would help us in our day-to-day to know that we need to look to you And the only way that we can ever actually analyze our lives and to look and to see that we are in the faith, the only way we can do that is to actually understand the faith. God, I pray that our assurance would motivate us that we are not in a race to merit before you because Christ has finished the race. God, I pray that we would be those who in our hearts 
in our evangelism and in our sanctification are remembering that the gospel is good news. That the gospel stands alone, that the cross stands alone, that we wouldn't put anything on the altar that might pervert it, even our filthy rags of good deeds. Lord, I pray that we would worship you in light of all these truths even now. Amen.